Today's reading is Psalm 116, 1 through 14. I love the Lord because he has heard my voice and my pleas for mercy. Because he inclined his ear to me, therefore I will call on him as long as I live. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold on me. I suffered distress and anguish. Then I called on the name of the Lord. O Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Our God is merciful. The Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. Return, O Lord, return my soul to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. For you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed when I spoke. I am greatly afflicted. I said in my alarm, all mankind are liars. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I'm married to her, which is awesome. So, uh, My name is uh, Daniel Long, and I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. And... Um, we're going to talk about the book of Exodus uh, this morning, the, the first, actually the second chapter, Exodus 2, at the end of it. Uh, and before that, I just wanted to, if you're new, or if you've been, maybe you're new within the last few months, something you may not know is actually our senior leader, the pastor here, Lou Huseman, he's, he's on sabbatical. And so as a result of that, there have been many different voices up here, people preaching, and it's been an opportunity, I think, for us to, to really be blessed by each other. Um, but it's also an opportunity to be praying for us as a church and to be praying for Lou. And I just wanted to mention that because it, you may not be aware. And just to also keep that in mind for us to be praying, um, to be people who are praying for us um, in this season. But over the next couple weeks, uh, well, this week and next, I'll be preaching this morning on Exodus. And then Eric Balmer, an elder here, will be preaching in Exodus. And so as a result of that, what I thought I would do to kind of set up the... The, at least the first half of the book of Exodus, is to show a short five-minute video, um, a really great informative video that I think lays some really important and helpful foundation. And it's something I think you kids, if you're a kid, raise your hand. Welcome to you. That Some of you aren't kids who raise your hand, so that's super confusing, but also revealing. Um, but, if, if you, no, but if you're a kid and you can't, you can't see the screen... I'd actually like to encourage you to come find a spot where you might be able to see it. If you can see where you are, or from where you are, that's great. Um, but here's a video from this, this place called The Bible Project, who really seeks to just kind of distill some of the main points of a book and help us understand it better. So if you want to roll that video. Let's talk about the book of Exodus. Now, you're probably familiar with this book because of the epic story of Moses leading Israel out of slavery from Egypt. Yeah, but that's just the first half of the book. The second half has Moses giving the Ten Commandments to Israel along with these blueprints for making a sacred tent. Now, right here in the middle is the story that connects these two halves together, and it all takes place at the foot of a famous mountain. Okay, so let's start... Back at the beginning. So the first thing we have to remember is we're continuing the story from Genesis. Yeah, in Genesis, God promised Abraham that through his family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Genesis ends with Abraham's family down in Egypt. When Exodus begins, 400 years have passed. The family grows 
and becomes the people group now called Israel. But there's this huge problem because the Israelites are enslaved to this king of the Egyptians, a guy called Pharaoh. This guy is really bad news. Yeah, he's horrible. He, he disregards their humanity. He brutally enslaves them. And he even orders that all of the Israelites' sons should be killed by throwing them into the Nile River. He wants to wipe these people out. He's the worst character in the Bible so far. Here's where we meet an Israelite woman who wants to save her son. And so she does throw him in the river, but safely, in this little reed basket. And Pharaoh's daughter finds this baby and takes him as her own. And this is the boy who grows up to become Moses, the man who will rescue Israel from slavery. So Moses grows up, and one day, much later in his life, he has this crazy encounter with God where he comes across a bush that's on fire, but it isn't actually burning up. And God speaks from the bush, and he appoints Moses as the man he will use to deliver Israel. So Moses goes to Pharaoh to tell him this, this news that God wants his people free. And Pharaoh, he just pretty much laughs at him. He's like, Who, who's this God, Yahweh? And in fact, he's so offended by this request, he decides to make the Israelites work even harder. So discouraged, Moses goes back to God and says, listen, this plan's not going to work. But God repeats his promise that he's going to rescue them. And in fact, it's right here for the first time in the Bible that we hear the word redemption. It literally just means to purchase a slave's freedom. But God here uses this word to describe what he's going to do for enslaved Israel. And God knows Pharaoh is going to resist. So he sends 10 different plagues, one after another, like turning water into blood, sending all sorts of pests and disease. These plagues are really severe. They are severe, but we need to understand that the story is presenting these as acts of divine justice against one of the worst oppressors in the story of the Bible. And they're all aimed at the purpose of rescuing these enslaved people and defeating the gods of Egypt. This all comes to a climax at the 10th plague, where God's going to kill the firstborn sons across all Egypt. Every house, it's pretty rough. It is, but it's also God's response for how Pharaoh killed the Israelite sons. Now as you turn the page, you suddenly get two long chapters of detailed instructions for what's essentially throwing a dinner party with a recipe for a lamb. Yeah, but this lamb is super important. God tells the Israelites to pick it out and to prepare it to be eaten. And they're supposed to take its blood and then paint it all over the doorframe of their house. And anyone who is in that house will be spared from this final plague. And so this meal, which is called Passover, it commemorates this key moment in the story where God brings his justice on human evil, but also shows mercy by providing this substitute. This final plague makes Pharaoh angry, and he demands that Israel gets out of Egypt, which is great. But suddenly as they leave, Pharaoh changes his mind. He has a change of heart. But on top of that, we're also told that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Why would God do that? Well, what we need to remember is that over and over in this story, Pharaoh has already chosen to harden his own heart. And so at this point, Pharaoh, he's not just evil, he's become monstrously evil. Even his own advisors think that he has gone way too far. And so how is God supposed to deal with such an extreme form of evil? And what we see in this story is that God uses his power to lure evil into its own destruction. Pharaoh and his army are destroyed in the Red Sea as Israel passes into freedom. And after this, we find the very first song of worship in the Bible as the people praise God for redeeming them. 
And it's in this story that the word salvation is also used for the first time, which means simply to be rescued from danger. Now that they're saved, you would think that everything should be great, but the story quickly turns. The Israelites start wandering in the desert. They're tired, hungry, lost. And you start to wonder, what's God doing? What were they saved for? And we learn the answer to that question in the very next story, which ties the two parts of this whole book together. So I'm going to argue there is no, there is no book, no, no book in the Bible that I think is more significant to the imagination of the people of Israel than perhaps the book of Exodus. Or at least there's no event in their history that is more shaping for them as a people than the Exodus event. I mean, what God did in the book of Exodus to rescue the people of, of Israel from Egypt is so foundational that it shaped their life, their practices, and it actually shapes all of Scripture. If you think about the book of Exodus and all the different things that happen, and you actually look at some of the ways that the story of Jesus is told, there are so many similarities in terms of what God has done in Jesus to rescue all people is similar to what God did for the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. But before we get to the end of chapter 2, which is when God really kind of inserts, he's inserted into the story. I mean, it's, it's kind of a typical story, which I thought this did a great job of just kind of highlighting some of the main key points of it, in that we have this people, right, who, who are in Egypt, and we're told that, that actually the king who is over the people of Israel forgot their, basically his relationship with them, and began to enslave and began to oppress them. That their, their worth was only really founded in the, in the types of labor that they were able to do and the things they were able to build. Their humanity was, in a sense, lost. And there's this person, Pharaoh, who, who right, right, he rises to power, and he's this incredible oppressor. And then as we turn the page into chapter 2, we see that he actually has an edict that that all the male children of Israel are to die. This is basically like, um, I don't know, he just wants, he doesn't want Israel to grow to become a people who can actually fight back. So it's like population control. And we're told there's this woman who actually puts Moses in a basket, goes down the river, and a daughter of the Pharaoh finds Moses and takes him into her care. And he grows up, and then he actually, as, as an adult, he sees one of the Hebrew, Hebrew people, one of his own people, though he doesn't necessarily know that yet, being abused. And he kills the Egyptian who's abusing this Hebrew person. And then he needs to flee. And so he flees to a town called Midian where he, he's actually hiding out and ends up getting married. And Pharaoh is aware of what Moses did, and, and, and Moses is afraid that he's actually going to be killed for harming an Egyptian person. What I think is so great, at least about how the, the text is written up to this point, it almost feels like the story is about Moses, does it not? I mean, it feels like he's the main character in the story. And I was reminded, actually, and kids, I hope you can appreciate this, I was reminded of the Lego movie. So if you've seen the Lego movie, raise your hand. All right, so in the Lego movie, there's this character named Emmett. Emmett Brukowski, great name. 
And he is all of a sudden, he, he finds himself kind of falling down into this pit and attached to him is this piece of resistance, right? And there's this evil, pharaoh-like figure in the Lego movie, Lord Business, who, with this incredible power of the craggle, is going, is going to really fuse this whole world together and, in a sense, is kind of like oppressing these people. And you have, like, these characters, Vitruvius and Wildstyle and Batman, who's the best. And... Um, and What's crazy is it almost feels like this story, the Lego movie, is about Emmett, right? He seems like he's the main character. But as the story is actually told, what we discover as people who are watching that movie is that there's this much larger story going on. That Emmett and Lord Business and Wildstyle and Vitruvius are actually a part of this greater narrative. And I'm not going to give it away if you haven't seen it, but kids, you know what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> and it's like, almost like as if the story is kind of peeled back, and we're like, whoa, they're a part of something bigger. Well, at the end of Exodus 2, that's exactly what happens. It seems as if the story is about Moses, and about his fleeing, and his getting married, and what is Moses going to do? And then all of a sudden, something happens. And the main character of the story emerges. And that brings us to Exodus 2, 23 through 25. So if you have something like a Bible or a device, and if you can turn there, that would be really great. And I'm going to read it in just a minute. Exodus 2, verse And as I read it, here's what I want you, I want you to be asking this question. I think this is a, a fundamental question to ask yourself when you're reading Scripture. Is what does this say about God and what he's like? So what does this say about God and what he's like? Exodus 2.23. So during those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So if we think about this text, these, these, just these three verses, I think it's pretty amazing that the thing that, that kind of brings God into the story is what? Is the people groaning and crying out because of their slavery to God. But here's also what's amazing. To whom are they crying out and to whom are they groaning? We might assume, oh, well, it's God. But it actually, it's unclear. They're actually just groaning and they're crying out because their situation, their world. Their plight is so oppressive that they can't actually, they can't help but just cry out and groan for anyone and anything to help them. They're, uh, they're absolutely at their base level of just complete need. And what's amazing is that even in their crying out and their groaning, those cries go up to God and God hears them. 
I mean, have you ever found yourself in a situation, kids too, have you ever found yourself in a situation where you, like, you actually don't know how to articulate what it is you're feeling? You can't help but actually just cry and groan. I mean, I think of people that I've, that I've been with or alongside over the last few months. People like, like Dan and Dana Stump, people like Dan and Marsha Dobler, people like the Stringhams, Ed and Diane, and I can't help but think that they must have had moment, moments in which there is nothing they can actually do but just cry out. They're, they don't know, even know in those moments how to pray. Do you ever find yourself in that moment? Well, the good news is that even in those moments, God hears. God hears our cries and our groanings. But as the text continues, it's because of that. It's because of God hearing that God then remembers. And what does he remember? He remembers this covenant that he's made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This covenant that through the people of Israel, that God will make of them a great nation, and he will bless them, and they will then be a blessing. God hears the cries of his people. God remembers the promises he's made. And then it says that God saw the people of Israel. And then God knew. So God hears, God remembers, God sees, and God knows. God sees the affliction and the oppression of the people of Israel. And I love the way that the ESV interprets it because it's so ambiguous and so vague. And it just simply ends with, and God knew. What is it that he knew? Was it that he knew what he was now going to do? Was it that he knew that, that he was supposed to do something, that he was obligated to do something? Well, at the very least, all this language, God hearing, God remembering, God seeing, and God knowing, is all relational language. God is in absolute and complete relationship with the people of Israel. And God will remain faithful to that relationship. And because God has looked upon his people and seen what it is, that they, the oppression that they are under, he can't help but act. And that's the beautiful thing, I think, that this text offers to us as God's people, as, as the story continues and the people of Israel begin to, to move on and we get God who reveals himself in Jesus that all of these things come from a, from a God who hears our cries when we can't even articulate those cries to him. A God who remembers how incomplete and utter relationship he is into us and can't help but see us. Like, do you ever, kids, I want to ask you, do you ever think of God as, well, I mean, I guess that's a question. What do you think of when you think about God? But do you ever wonder if God hears you. I do. Sometimes when I pray, there's a question. Is God listening, right? Certainly if I find myself in a situation when it feels like I'm, there, I'm in utter 
it just sadness or feeling oppressed, do you ever wonder if God remembers you or cares? Do you ever wonder if God actually sees you? Do you wonder if God knows who you are? Like you, you as an individual, us as a people. Well, this text is good news for me because I really believe that God does. I really hope and trust that God is a God who hears my cries, who remembers his promises to his creation and to us as his people. A God who sees and not distracted. I mean, that's what I, I think. When I think about God seeing, I think of sometimes like those, like parents, we all have these moments, right? Where like we're, I don't know what you're doing. If you're on your phone or something and, and your child is like, Daddy, look. And you're like, yeah, for, yeah, totally, awesome. And you're just, you know, for sure, I got it. Yeah, keep going. It's good. You know, you're not even paying attention. And sometimes I wonder if, if we think, oh, yeah, God's not really paying attention. Yeah, sure, he's kind of like, all right, yeah, let's just do these things, but it doesn't really matter. But God isn't that way. God is actually attentive. God is, is seeing, and he's looking upon us. And God knows us. Like when a, when a baby cries, like a newborn baby cries, those, like, they, I would argue that those babies don't know to whom they are crying, right? They just simply can't do anything else but need. And it's in their need they cry. And then a parent comes and it consoles and it feeds and it nourishes. And then over time, the baby, the child, begins to see this parent as someone who will love and care and take care of them. And that, I think, is an image in what we are offered here of who God is to us is a God to whom we can cry and a God to whom hears us and remembers us and will come and nourishes and consoles and rescues and takes care of us. And then over time, we can have trust and hope in that relationship. So for all of us this morning, it's very simple. Kids, very simple. I think you can get this. Here's what I hope that you know and believe about God. That God hears you. That God sees you. Remembers you. That God sees you and that God knows you. God hears you. God remembers you. God's whatever. God knows you. You know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> hears, remembers, sees, knows. Those are the four things that I hope that you understand about God. And that as you cry, and as you pray, and as God hears, and as God remembers, and as God sees, and as God knows, that you would trust that God is active and involved and engaged in your life. So this morning, wherever you are, wherever I am, wherever we are in our journey, with this God who's revealed himself in Jesus. May God's hearing and remembering and seeing and knowing bring us comfort. And may those truths help us to remember a God who's at work in our lives, 
who's active in the world and who's actually mobilized to rescue and to redeem. Thanks be to God.